My name, again, is Rob, and I lead our San Francisco branch. I'm a full-time missionary with Jews for Jesus. And I'll share a little bit more about Jews for Jesus in a little while. But this morning, I've come to share a message with you called The Gospel and the Feast of Israel. Now, um, you know, it sounds like I might be talking about eating. You know, when we hear the word feast, at least for me, I think of food. But the word feast that I'm speaking about this morning is actually the festivals of Israel. And that's what I want to share with you about. And we're going to do a very quick run-through of a number of the festivals. And the reason for that is because I'm sure you don't want to be here for a few hours. So if it sounds as though I'm going to be giving you just a little bit of detail, it's just because there's so much packed in to this little bit of time. But what I'd like to do is I'd like you to have you turn in your Bibles right now to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39 is our starting point. That's John chapter 5, verse 39. Can we read? Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Jesus is speaking about the law, about the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, and how they pointed towards him. And, you know, we can see that, especially in all of the feasts of Israel, all right? And in the five books of Moses, which the Jewish people refer to as the law, or the Torah, the prophets, and all that, there's a lot mentioned about the God-ordained festivals. And if we were to look in particular at Leviticus chapter 23, there's a whole listing of all of the Jewish feasts. And what I'd like to do is, um, in case you take notes, I'm not sure if you take notes normally in the morning, I want to give you a brief outline of Leviticus chapter 23 that you'll be able to refer back to a little bit later on. Um, but let me give you an outline of the various feasts that are mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. The first two that are taken together are Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And those are listed in verses 4 to 14. Again, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the next festival mentioned is Shavuot, meaning the Feast of Weeks, or as we commonly call it, Pentecost. And that's in verses 15 through 22. And then we come to Rosh Hashanah, the fall festivals. Rosh Hashanah which we actually just celebrated a a few days ago. It's also known as the Feast of Trumpets, and that's in verses 23 to 25. Then uh, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and that's in verses 26 to 32. And then finally, the last one is Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, And that's in verses 33 to 44. Okay, so maybe you'll have a chance later on and and look those up on your own. But these festivals occur throughout the year. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Shavuot occur in the spring, while Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot occur in the fall. And it's significant that God emphasizes the fact that these festivals are supposed to be celebrated yearly. What could be the reasoning behind this command of God that the feasts are a portrait of who Jesus is, 
of what he was to do when he came and what he'll do when he returns again. And you know what I'd like to do is take a few moments now and just go over each of these feasts and their relevance to Jesus, okay? So let's start out with Passover. Passover was always very special to me as I was a boy growing up in New York City. I bet you couldn't tell I'm from New York originally. You know, I've been out in California now since 1985, and you know, there's one thing. You know, you can take the boy out of New York, but you can't take the New York out of the boy, so what can I say? But when I was growing up in New York, I remember how Passover, my parents and my older brother and I would used to, used to travel to my grandparents' house for Passover and observe the, the Seder, the observance of Passover, and it was always very special to me. And one of the things that I really looked forward to was the feast. And now when I'm talking about feast, I'm talking about food. Okay, my mother and my grandmother would prepare for days on end Jewish delicacies like matzo ball soup, gefilte fish, chopped liver. Now hold back your excitement. I'm not going to serve it to you today, okay? I don't want you to be drooling all over the place, all right? Just wanted to set the mood a little bit. Um, <clears throat> And during Passover and also the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the other festival we celebrated then, there are two significant items that are to be used according to the law. An unblemished lamb, one year old, and the other is unleavened bread, or we say matzah. And these items focus our attention on two central themes, which are uh, redemption and sanctification. And God commanded the Israelites to take an unblemished lamb, one year old, and to apply its blood to the doorposts of their homes while they were in Egypt. And the reason for that was so that when the 10th plague came upon the land of Egypt, the death angel would see the blood on the doorposts and would pass over the homes of the Israelites and they would therefore be redeemed. Now, in the New Testament, you might remember that Yeshua, that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world in John chapter 1, verse 29. And I can see that God asked for a lamb without spot or blemish to illustrate the coming of the Messiah, who would be without sin, and who would offer up himself as a one-time all-sufficient sacrifice for us all. <clears throat> and just as the Israelites had to apply in faith the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their homes, so we as well, need to, by faith, apply the blood of the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, upon our hearts so that judgment will pass over us as well. Amen? And the unleavened bread, or the matzah, of the Feast of Unleavened, of unleavened Bread represents our sanctification. Now, I know somebody's probably saying, well, how do you know all of this? Well, <clears throat> you might recall that in many places in the Bible, Leaven is referred to as sin. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Remember that? So we can see that these two festivals go hand in hand with one another. First, we have redemption through the Passover lamb. And then we have a call for the redeemed to live sanctified lives, lives set apart from sin for the Lord. And then the next festival mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23 is Shavuot, which literally means weeks, or as we commonly call it, Pentecost. And the reason why we call it Pentecost 
is because this festival is celebrated 50 days after the Passover Sabbath, okay? And in traditional Judaism, this festival has come to represent the time when the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, further signifying the birth of the nation of Israel as a people. But interestingly enough, there's a New Testament significance as well, in that the birth of the church took place during this very same festival. If you think about it, in Acts chapter 2, what happens? There's the giving of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit came upon the 3,000 souls that day. And that in Acts 2, when they came to faith in Jesus, when they received him into their heart, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then a new covenant was ratified. But this time it wasn't to include only Israel, those Jewish people, like it was back in the time of Moses. But this time it was to include those faithful Gentiles as well who call upon the name of the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their God. And you know, it's so fitting that as a tradition, the Jewish people read the story of Ruth every year during this time. And I say this for a couple of reasons. First of all, the harvest spoken of in this book reminds me of the harvest of those 3,000 souls that day in Acts chapter 2. And not only that, but Ruth... In case you didn't know this, Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a Gentile by birth who chose to call upon the name of the God of Israel as her God. And you know, what a wonderful and a beautiful picture this is of how one day Gentiles would also call upon the name of the God of Israel as their God as well. And following Shavuot, I told you this was going to be a quickie for each of these festivals, okay? But you have the time, you'll have the time to study a lot more about these festivals later on. <clears throat> now, following Shavuot in the Jewish calendar is Rosh Hashanah, which literally means the head of the year. Now, I'm wondering, how many of you know somebody who's Jewish, just out of curiosity? Okay, if you're in Redwood City, a lot of you would know Jewish people. Well, you probably have heard your Jewish friend, acquaintance, mention that they just celebrated the Jewish New Year right? Well, Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year, okay? And most Jewish people think of this as the new year, but there's a problem, okay? That's according to the rabbis. But if you look at the scriptures, if you were to go back to Leviticus chapter 23, which I trust you will later on, you'll find out that Rosh Hashanah actually occurs in the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. So how can the beginning of the new year occur in the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, right? So by tradition, it's known as a Jewish New Year. But biblically speaking, it's called the Feast of Trumpets. Okay? Yom HaTruah. All right? And so, um, trumpets are blown during this festival. And we just celebrated, actually, this past uh, Wednesday night, we had a service. And uh, Thursday. Okay? And so, we had a shofar blown, okay, during the festival. I should have brought one with me. And the shofar is not a brass trumpet. It's not gold. It's not a silver trumpet. It's a ram's horn, okay? And if any of you have ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, the one made by Cecil B. DeMoses, okay? Might remember that movie. You might have seen the ram's horn blown, right? 
And so this is a tradition, we blow the ram's horn during Rosh Hashanah. And the reason is because another thing that we do in services is a traditional reading of Genesis chapter 22, which is known in Hebrew as the Akedah, or the binding of Isaac. Okay, And we read that story every year at Rosh Hashanah. Very interesting story. <clears throat> God says to Abraham, this is the test. God says to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and take him to the mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him there. Okay, I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit. Now, did God have a memory lapse? Remember something? Did Abraham just have one child, one son? Of course not. He had another son before that, before Isaac, and that was Ishmael, who was born to Hagar, who was a maidservant of Sarah. But yet, interestingly enough, God says to Abraham, take now your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That's because he was the child of promise. He was born by miraculous means. Sarah was 90 years old. Abraham was 100. She had been barren all of her life. God promised them that Isaac would be born. Sure enough, he came along. In fact, when Sarah heard that God made this promise, what'd she do? She was making these bread cakes back in the kitchen, if you will. Um, and when she heard this, her reaction was to laugh. Well, the next year the laugh was on her because Isaac was born. In fact, Isaac's very name means to laugh. Okay? <clears throat> so God had Abraham take Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him there. Then what happens? They get up there. He's about to pull the knife about to slay Isaac. And then what does the angel of the Lord say? He appears, says, don't, don't slay your son, okay? Instead, what does God do? He says, now I know you, have, you, you love God or you believe me because you have not, you know, you have not, uh, you have taken your son, your only son to slay him. Okay, remember, I'm paraphrasing. And what does God do? He provides a ram caught in the thicket to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac, right? Now, remember, on the way up to Moriah, Isaac is carrying the wood for the altar. He becomes the very sacrifice, in a sense. In fact, interestingly enough, according to rabbinic tradition and the Mishnah, I think it is, it talks about the fact that, in a sense, Isaac was resurrected, that maybe he did die and he was raised from the dead. Very interesting. You know, and even if it wasn't literally, it's certainly, you could say figuratively or metaphorically, you could say that Isaac was raised from the dead. <clears throat> In the meantime, who does that remind you of? Anybody that you know? Yeshua, Jesus, right? Very prophetic story, all right? Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if the angel of the Lord who spoke in first person for God wasn't in fact Jesus, who was there at that very point watching Abraham do all of this. All right. And then between Rosh Hashanah and the next festival known as Yom Kippur, which we'll be celebrating this coming Friday night. By the way, Jews for Jesus has a service. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later on. But between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, there are what's called the 10 days of awe. And according to the rabbis, they have said to remake yourselves by repentance during the 10 days between New Year's Day and the Day of Atonement. You see, Rosh Hashanah, the, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, is to remind us by hearing the trumpets that we are sinful, 
the sacrifices were uh, our payment in the past for our sins. That's why the trumpets are blown, by the way. Okay, just like we remember the the ram who was sacrificed in the place of Isaac and all that. You know, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The parallels there. So at Rosh Hashanah, for this ten day period, we're supposed to be considering our sins before God, and then it culminates in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the themes of Yom Kippur are redemption and reconciliation. Every year, the Jewish people are supposed to celebrate this festival by fasting, by praying in synagogues in unison, confessing their sins as one body. <clears throat> but there's one element that's missing from the modern-day observance of Yom Kippur, and that's the blood sacrifices. You see, there's no longer a temple in Jerusalem where the sacrifices can be offered up. And of course, we know as believers in Jesus that the reason for that is because the final sacrifice was paid. But in the meantime, if you happen to be Jewish and you don't believe in Jesus, you know, uh, then what do you do? Well, according to the rabbis, you fast, you pray, you give to charity, you do mitzvot, which is good deeds, things like that. What do we call it? We call it works righteousness, okay? And so... That's what's done very often today. But the reason why all this is important, you know, think about it. In Leviticus 16 and 17, it speaks about all the sacrifices that are supposed to be offered up during the time of Yom Kippur. In fact, the reason why the blood is so important, Leviticus 17, 11, it states, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And again, the reason why that's so important is because the sacrifices were meant to show us that there was a price to pay for the sins that we had committed and that God would accept a substitute. And again, this beautifully illustrates God's plan of salvation through the sacrifice of his own son, Yeshua. Not only that, but just as a high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with blood from others, from animal sacrifices. He would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. So Jesus, acting as our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, which we read about in the book of Hebrews, came before the Father on our behalf. And what I'd like you to do right now is I'd like you to turn in your scriptures to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. And we'll be looking at chapter 9, Starting in, I believe it's verse 24. That's Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 24. And we read, For Messiah, for Christ, is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true but unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have often suffered since the foundations of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment... So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time 
without sin unto salvation. Do you see the parallels? Do you see the difference between the shadows and the substance, the reality? You know, remember, who was the epistle, the letter to the Hebrews written to? Written to Jewish believers. So when they were looking at Hebrews chapter 9 and they were reading about the high priest going into the Holy of Holies once a year, what were they thinking about? Yom Kippur. And the idea of, uh, you know, the priest going in year after year after year to make the same sacrifices for all the people, it seemed almost fruitless. It happened year after year. But then he's saying, once at the end, at the culmination of all of this, the real high priest, the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, would come from heaven. He would make the sacrifice of himself for all the people, and it would be a one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice for us all, okay? That it wouldn't be the, wor- the temple in the world, but it would be the ultimate temple, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate high priest, okay? So what a prophetic festival Yom Kippur is. And then finally, we come to the last festival mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23, which is known as Sukkot. And there are a number of names which describe this festival, such as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this festival is characterized by rejoicing. Rejoicing over God's provision, not only for the harvest, but of course in God's forgiveness after Yom Kippur. And my people celebrate this festival by building booths made of palm branches, wood and leaves from trees and other items from nature, The interior is decorated with fruits, gourds, and vegetables. And you know, again, when I was growing up in New York, we used to attend synagogue. And at uh, Sukkot, the adults of our congregation used to build a large sukkah, a large booth on the rooftop of our building. Can you imagine? You know, where everybody would go up after our services, all the adults and even the children, up to the rooftop and sit in a sukkah. And we would have all kinds of interesting foods and, of course, fruit salad. And the reason for the fruit salad was it reminded us of God's provision and God's bounty in the harvest, okay? But it's also interesting to note that this festival has the greatest messianic significance. And I say that for a number of reasons. First of all, the palm, willow, and myrtle branches that are tied together, they're known in Hebrew as a lulav, they're waved in the synagogue during this ser- these services, during Sukkot, to arouse joy, thanksgiving, and praise of God and the people. <clears throat> in fact, by rabbinic tradition, if you could see it, it, it looks like a straight kind of a thing, like a sheath, if you will. And uh, sheath. And what, they, what the rabbi says, it represents the spine of a person. Okay, so it represents a person. And then we also had another item which we used, which is called an etrog, which is a large lemon. It's a citron. And according to, again, rabbinic tradition says that the citron represents the heart of the person. So, okay, if you hold these two together, which was tradition, and you wave them up and down and from side to side, what happens? But it represents a person praising God for the whole, you know, all four directions of the world, for everything, Okay. Now, what did the 
the people do, if you remember on that fateful Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem before his crucifixion, do you remember how the people greeted him? What'd they do? They waved palm branches. They threw palm branches in the road. And what did they shout out? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why do you think they did that? Maybe they thought that Jesus was going to establish his physical kingdom right then and there. They were thinking Sukkot. Okay, what was the problem? It was Passover. It wasn't Sukkot. Okay, so it's sort of like they were celebrating, you know, outside of, of, you know, sequence, what they were supposed to be doing. And then secondly, in looking at Luke chapter 9, which speaks of Jesus' transfiguration before Peter, John, and James. Do you remember when Peter was up there? You know, you know, pulse of Peter, right? He sees Jesus transfigured before them, speaking to Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, of course. He sees this all happening. What does Peter offer to do? He says, let's build booths, right? He thought he'd made it. You know, he was there in the heavens. Time to build booths, Sukkot. You ever wonder about any of that? See, getting some new ideas today. Well, it might have been that he was thinking about a prophecy, actually, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, being fulfilled before his eyes. And let's turn there for a minute, okay? Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. It's toward the end of the uh, Older Testament, if you will, the Jewish scriptures. Okay, chapter 9, Zechariah, verse 14. And it says, And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as a lightning, and the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, the shofar, and shall go with the whirlwinds of the south. You know, I'm thinking, I, 16, right? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not reading the right one. 16. Um, and the Lord their God shall save them in that day as a flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown, lifted as an ensign upon his land. Now, am I reading right? Whoops. I am sorry. It's 1416. Why am I in 916? Let me try that again. Chapter 14, verse 16. Third time's the charm. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, Sukkot. And it shall be that whoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them there shall be no rain. So, and the rest of it speaks about the Feast of Tabernacles as well. So this festival has a number of implications for us too. During the 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites lived in these temporary dwellings, these temporary huts. And we who know Jesus as our salvation and Lord need to remember that right now we're living in, in these temporary huts as well. Um, but that one day we have to remember that Jesus said that he was going, he promised that he was going to prepare a place for us in heaven where we would be with him forever. Mansions, right? It's what I remember in John 14, verses 2 to 3. But we also need to remember the reason why the Israelites 
wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years. It was because of their lack of faith. It was because of the rebellion against the Lord. Even Moses, even Moses, who was more faithful than you or I will probably ever be in this life, um, blew it. And he wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. If you remember, uh, the people were complaining. They were thirsting for water. And Moses went before God and God said to Moses, strike the rock and water would come forth from it. And Moses was obedient and he did that. And God provided the water that the people needed. But sometime later, a similar thing happened. And the people were complaining. They were bellyaching. And, you know, Moses was getting so frustrated. And he went to God again. He said, what should I do? And God changed the plan this time. God said to Moses, speak to the rock that the water would come forth. Well, you know what? At this point, Moses was probably at the end of his rope. He was so frustrated and he was probably starting to question, you know, how could water come forth from a rock if you speak to it? And he decided to take matters into his own hands and he struck the rock again twice because he saw it worked the first time. And God in his love and his faithfulness provided the water that the people needed despite Moses' disobedience and lack of faith. But because of that incident, God wouldn't have let Moses to enter into the promised land. Good news is, if you remember with the transfiguration, what did we notice? Jesus was speaking with Moses and Elijah. So we know Moses is with the Lord, nothing to fear. We'll get to meet him someday. But you know what? Just think about it. If God didn't allow Moses to enter into the promised land because of his lack of faith, then neither will he allow Jew or Gentile to enter into his kingdom, the ultimate kingdom, if we've not trusted in his provision of Jesus and Messiah. So simple, yet so difficult. But that's why we need to enter in. Let's bow forward to prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that while we were still sinners, you sent Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus and Messiah, to die for us. Lord, we thank you so much for all the feasts of Israel and how they point in various ways to what Jesus, our Messiah, would do one day, what he's done and what he will do in the future for us. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anybody here who is not trusted in Jesus as their Messiah, as their Lamb of God, that even this morning they would take that step of faith and make that commitment to you, Lord.